Did you notice a difference between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of uh, Mark so far? Uh, there was a pretty huge difference. Um, and we have been making somewhat of a compare and contrast of the Gospels as we look at a harmony of the Gospels, as we're kind of going through the Gospels, seeing how they sort of uh, tell the story from different angles and different perspectives um, and for different purposes. The, each, each Gospel um, exists for sort of a different um, purpose. And I wanted to kind of go over a little bit of an introduction this evening, if you'd allow me, uh, to the Gospel of Luke, because it is unique quite a bit from all the other Gospels, uh, the, the other three particularly, but I'll show you some of the similarities, differences, and what have you tonight. But um, in the introduction of Luke, there's a few things I just wanna kinda get, get right out, uh, on the, out of the gate. Um, uh, one of the things you should know is Luke is not an eyewitness account of the Gospel, um, uh, but rather uh, sort of compiled information by someone who's really good at compiling information. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But um, you know, in Matthew, we had Matthew himself, the disciple, who was an eyewitness. Um, and you might even call Mark an eyewitness account because it was written by, well, who, anybody? It was written by John Mark by his hand, but Peter was the one who was coaching him. So you might call Mark an eyewitness account, most scholars do, because it was from Peter's perspective, uh, most agree. But Luke's gospel came from him investigating and compiling all the evidence and writing it all down. Um, and that, that's, uh, we'll learn more why he's the guy for the job here in a minute. But number two, another thing you should know, Luke was most likely a Gentile. Um, in fact, in Colossians, you can jot this down in your notes, chapter four, verse 11, um, it, it, it's a description of some of the brothers that are serving there uh, with Paul the apostle and what have you. And Paul lists a bunch of Jews and then Paul's, uh, draws a, a, a distinction between Luke and the other colleagues of the circumcision. So Luke is outside of the circumcision, which is, means probably he was a Gentile. But we also know Luke was very likely a Greek, uh, specifically uh, a Greek person. Um, and we're gonna see that uh, there's uh, undertones of uh, Luke's Greek influence. Um, and that's one of the reasons, by the way, on our Luke artwork, um, we, uh, we have some of the Greek stuff and I'll, I'll show you some more of that. Uh, there's Greek statues and stuff uh, that, that actually pertain to the gospel of Luke. We'll talk more about that later. But Luke was, was uh, most likely, most scholars agree, a Greek man. Um, he's only named three times in the New Testament. So he's not a major Bible character, but he is a Bible character um, and we'll see how. Um, we know a couple things about Luke. Uh, Luke was a physician um, and also a scholar. In, in Colossians 4, verse 14, Paul refers to Luke, the beloved physician and Demas, they greet you. Um, so he was the beloved physician. Um, vo uh, the, the, the vocabulary of this gospel is gonna show. I told you, you know, last week we were talking about Paul and his, you know, Mars Hill uh, rap and how his Greek use of the language, Greek language was impressive. Well, Luke gets close. He, he, he still blows out all the Greek uh, epic writers, you know, uh, uh, Homer and stuff like that. Luke is also known for very scholarly Greek. Um, in fact, some would even argue it gives Paul a run for the money, uh, especially when it comes to medical terms, which is interesting. As a physician, we're gonna see some of those terms. I'll try to show you some of those things. Only a doctor would tell you that, that we see in Luke. It's kind of funny. Um, yeah, we'll see that. Uh, the vocabulary through this book will be scholarly and medical in nature, um, that pointing out things. Like, for example, uh, let me just give you one. I'll wet the whistle here. Um, so, um, it, you know the story of Malchus, the high priest's ear gets chopped off in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, it's Luke that points out um, that uh, one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Um, that's a doctor thing. Um, have you ever had surgery, you know, and they, they draw on your leg? This is the leg that you're supposed to have surgery on. This is the knee, and they draw. The reason they do that is there have been surgeries that have been done on the wrong legs uh, or, you know, remove the wrong, um, you know, whatever, uh, something you kind of needed that they took out or whatever. Uh, you want to mark it with a marker before you do surgery. But it's Luke who says he cut off his right ear, you know, um, right below the lobe. Like it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's just more of a medical kind of thing. We're going to see that more and more. In fact, he's going to write 
about Mary's pregnancy using medical terms that really uh, only a doctor might use. Um, Luke used more medical terms, by the way, than any other first century physician, more than even Hippocrates. Um, if you know you're into medicine or studied medicine, you know, Hippocrates is kind of, Hippocrates is kind of a big deal. It's where we get our Hippocratic oath uh, that is supposed to be still in use today, but is kind of not. Anyway, I digress. Um, but Hippocrates was a Greek physician. Uh, he's called the father of medicine. Um, had to do with um, uh, a lot of early uh, prognosis was a Hippocrates uh, kind of thing that he sort of invented and what have you. But when writing, Luke uses the highest form of Greek intellect and language um, along with Paul. Um, that's why you, you can understand why he and Paul could hang together. They were both fairly scholarly individuals. Um, the book of Luke is seen by all Bible scholars as an accurate, very accurate and precise representation of the gospel uh, in its authenticity, uh, authenticity and its accuracy. Luke is kind of famous for that. In fact, if you're wanting to use um, one of the gospels to do the best proof positive that Jesus was, was real and alive, died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, um, you might just do best. Some, some of the apologists would say, go to the gospel of Luke. It's easy to use to prove Jesus was who he claimed to be um, as in the person of God in the flesh. Um, so back to our list here, um, number four, Luke was a traveling companion with Paul the apostle. Um, if you know your missionary journeys of Paul, it was in Troas when Luke and Paul first uh, connect and become friends and co-laborers. Um, and, and, and then he went from Troas to Philippi, from Philippi to Jerusalem, and then Luke would ultimately go with uh, Paul to Rome. Uh, and then we'll read more about this in uh, Second Luke. Does anybody know what Second Luke is? Yeah, the book of Acts. That's, that's the book of Second Luke. Uh, it's called Acts. Uh, I don't know why they didn't call it Second Luke. It would make sense though. But um, Luke, uh, if you like the, the way the gospel of Luke is uh, kind of uh, narrated, uh, the book of Acts just picks up right where Luke uh, ends, ends up. And you'll see the writing style is the same and what have you. So uh, that's kind of an important thing to know. It, it's fun to read the gospel of Luke and then just go right into the gospel of, of Acts. And, and it's kind of neat to see that connectivity there. Um, the last we hear about Luke in the Bible is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Only Luke is with me, Paul said. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. I love this verse for so many reasons. Um, Luke's the last guy just hanging there with Paul in, in Rome, um, in prison, you know, in Rome with, with Paul and taking care of him. Um, and, and it's kind of cool, because this is where that, that kind of sweet little thing where, where Paul asks for John Mark to be brought. Remember, there was a kind of a breakup between John Mark and Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Paul and Bar Barnabas were sort of a team. John Mark was sort of the, um, the intern that was working there with them. And somehow John Mark failed Paul badly and bolted. And so Paul's like, I have no need for him. Get him out of my face kind of thing. And, and some people say, well, that was mean. Well, Barnabas was the guy who took and scooped John Mark up. Sort of, um, I love the name Barnabas, son of consolation. That's exactly what uh, Barnabas does. It seems that he sort of nurses young John Mark back to good spiritual health. And then at the end of Paul's life, he says, yeah, go bring, take Mark and bring him with you. Uh, I'd like to see him again, which is kind of cool. A little bit of a, maybe a reconciliation there of whatever happened in that. Um, but, um, but all that to say, it, you know, um, all these parts of, of Luke um, that's so scholarly, so solid, accurate. Um, in fact, it was uh, a guy by the name of Sir William Mitchell Ramsey, which I'd like you to know. He was a skeptical archeological guy uh, back in the 19, early 1900s. Um, and he went to Asia Minor to prove the wrongness of the Gospel of Luke. He, he, he looked at the Gospel of Luke and said, there's so many factual things in here, there's gotta be something really wrong. He, and he could prove it. He was set out to prove the Gospel of Luke as inaccurate, um, this guy, interestingly enough. But he went to Asia Minor. Um, but because it's so detailed, he was hoping he'd find some little shred of evidence that Luke didn't know what he was talking about. But in 1915, he ended up writing the book, The Bearing of Recent Discovery, is what it's called. And on page 85, he said, further studies showed that the book 
uh, of Luke could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world and that it was written in such, with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. On the page 89, uh, the same book, Ramsey accounted, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians. <laughs> this is a guy who set out to, as an atheist uh, to prove Luke's gospel wrong, ends up becoming a Christian and gets saved. Um, I love this. Uh, that happens all the time, by the way. There's, there's great um, um, you know, uh, examples of that. I think um, um, you know, perhaps, um, you know, I, I love um, Lee Strobel's work. He did the same thing. He was a, he was a newspaper reporter and an esteemed one. Um, and he ended up writing a book called The Case for Christ. Uh, I think it was around back in 2009. So it's quite an older book now, but um, and he ended up traveling the world, talking to all the experts and what have you, only to really find out, oops, uh, the, the, the gospel and Jesus is one of the most provable facts in all history. Uh, so you gotta love that. But all that to say, um, you know, uh, this, this, uh, this gospel of Luke is impressive just on that alone. Uh, that is the, it's a complete historical narrative about Jesus. Um, let's talk about some of the similarities and differences between the gospels um, so far that we've been studying. Um, if you recall, we, we gave you several uh, things uh, about Matthew and Mark. Let's just do a quick review of that. In, um, in Matthew, um, we talked about you know, um, how it presents Jesus, each gospel. And Matthew, we start with, um, you know, presents, Matthew presents Jesus as Messiah, which remember that's king. Messiah means king. And so Matthew uh, is uh, speaking to the Jews and it focuses on what Jesus said, his words. Uh, Matthew spends great time. A tax collector who was uh, into detail uh, is, uh, was the guy who recorded the, the words that Jesus said, and he did that quite well. Um, but the way it's organized in, in its style of writing is grouping of, of stories, grouping of events that happened. That's the style of the Gospel of Matthew. And it ends with the resurrection. We looked at Mark and just finished that last week. Let's rem remember what those are. It presents Jesus as servant. Um, and it focuses not on what Jesus said as much as what Jesus did. And we saw that uh, Matthew was written to the Jew while Mark was written to the Romans specifically. Um, and then the style of Mark was snapshots of, of, of little events, pictures of, of little stories. And it was, it was very hard hitting and fast paced snapshots, not, not a longer um, you know, uh, narrative, but actually just little snapshots of Jesus. Mark's the shortest, most concise of the gospels. And it ends with the uh, ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. Luke, on the other hand, um, it presents Jesus uh, as the son of man. That's, that's gonna be the focus. Um, he's 100% son of God, and he's 100% son of man. And by the way, this would be the title Jesus used both for himself. I, the son of man. Like, um, Jesus wants us to know he came in his humanity. Luke's gonna present him in his humanity, which is kind of interesting because Luke's gonna present him in his humanity, but also in sort of a biological doctor kind of way, which is kind of interesting. We'll see that as we go. Um, while Matthew focused on what he said, Mark focused on what he did, Luke is gonna fo focus on what Jesus felt. Uh, we're gonna see inside a little bit of Jesus and how he felt as he was going through some of these things. Um, and Luke was written to the Greek, which um, uh, is different than the Romans. The Romans and the Greeks were very different uh, in the way that they thought. And, um, and what have you. Uh, it's interesting on this Greek thing, the, the Greeks were always on the hunt for the perfect man. If you know your Greek mythology and your Greek uh, writings and what have you, that's why Socrates was such a favorite of the Greeks because he was a very intellectual guy, but he was ripped. He was huge, you know, um, and he was very muscular. And, and the Greeks were trying to find that, the perfect man of intellect, but athletic prowess and able to do stuff. Um, the story is told of Socrates, one young, you know, um, protege came to be trained. And, um, and um, he says, oh, you know, um, he says, I want wisdom. And Socrates, how much do you want wisdom? And he says, I really want wisdom. And he said, let's see. And Socrates took the guy down into the river there 
and he grabbed this guy, picture this big muscular Socrates, he grabbed the guy and then pushed him under the water and held him there for a while. As the guy's wiggling under the water and he pulls him up, he says, what do you want? He says, I want wisdom. And he pushes him down under again, holds him there for a while, pulls him back up, what do you want? And he says, I want wisdom. And he holds him down longer this time, just the poor kid's struggling. And just before he's about to you know, uh, black out, he pulls him up and he says, what do you want? He says, air. He said, when you want wisdom as much as you wanted air right there, then you'll find wisdom. <laughs> Tough way to learn a lesson, if you ask me. Uh, but Socrates was this, you know, that, but finding the perfect man in philosophy and human physiology um, and what have you, that was sort of the, the thing. Now, H.A. Ironside, uh, someone I read and love from another generation, uh, he wrote this about the Greeks uh, that I think is enlightening about this Gospel of Luke. He wrote this, the religion of Israel could only produce a Pharisee. The power of Rome could only produce a Caesar. The philosophy of Greece could only produce an Alexander, an infant at heart. It was to this Greek mind that Luke wrote. He presents Jesus Christ as the perfect man, the universal man, for the very person the Greeks were looking for. Um, that's the truth. The Gospel of Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man, which he is. Uh, so that's kind of important and, and a good part of our study here. We'll see that. Now, uh, does anybody know what's the Synoptic Gospels? Anybody wanna know? It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is not part of the Synoptic Gospels. What's a Synoptic Gospel? Well. The Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the reason they're referred to the Synoptic Gospel is because they include many of the same stories. Um, uh, synopsis, uh, uh, you know, is the idea there. Often in similar sequence and often uh, even sometimes even identical wording. Some of the, the three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, the synopsis, uh, Synoptic Gospels. The term synoptic um, comes from the Latin synopticus, uh, the Greek word, um, is, uh, you know, kind of the idea of, of um, you know, seeing it all together in a synopsis. Uh, Luke uh, is gonna have some, some great detail that we didn't get uh, due to the investigative nature of his gathering of information. Um, you, know, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you wonder, did he interview Mary to learn more about Jesus' birth and John the Baptist? Now, this is where it gets really interesting, and this is somewhat speculation, but... Most scholars believe that Luke may have had a, an interesting purpose. We'll show you that as we start reading, if we ever get to reading Luke. <clears throat> um, some scholars believe that Luke, the, the book of Luke, were um, actually written to be trial documents, which is kind of an interesting thing. Trial, what, what kind of, well, documents and facts that would pertain to, do you remember when Paul said, I appeal unto Caesar? which Paul as a Roman citizen had the right to do that, which was kind of shocking after they just beat him up and all this stuff. It's kind of a cool story. They're like, what, you're a Roman citizen and we just beat you up? Yeah, you're not supposed to do that. I appeal to Caesar. You wanna go see Caesar? Sure do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. So Paul went up to, to appeal to Caesar. Um, some believe that he brought Luke there because of his intellect and also his compiling of all the trial documents to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Um, and so that'd be kind of interesting if, if the Gospel of Luke was actually compiled by Luke for that purpose. Um, you know, it's interesting. Like you'll see, uh, if you kind of read it with that sort of lens, you realize uh, Luke never says a bad word about a centurion. In fact, they're always the good guys in the story. Um, the uprisings um, were always attributed to Paul's adversaries, the Jews, not the Romans. The Romans were not the problem in Luke's uh, account. And you almost can see maybe he was writing to sort of make this appeal to Caesar, not to defend Paul really, um, as much as to say, we want Caesar to know Jesus Christ. And that's why it's possible. Um, so Luke will have information that the other gospels don't. Um, now, uh, kind of interesting little uh, thing I wanna show you here. Um, and I thank Micah for putting this together for me kind of last minute, he's always good at this stuff. But um, as you kind of divide up the gospels, um, uh, when you um, see what's sort of unique to Mark, he only has 3%, 3% of what Mark said is unique uh, in, his, in his little book. Um, unique to Matthew, he gets 3%. 
um, and, um, and then shared with Matthew and Mark, uh, um, you can see that there's 18% of Mark, uh, 10% uh, of Matthew. Um, but it, it gets more interesting. Um, when you share um, Mark and Luke, there's a very little that's shared between the two. So we get kind of a fresh look at things here in the Gospel of Luke, especially after just finishing Mark. And then um, shared by Luke and Matthew, you actually have more, which is kind of interesting. Both guys, uh, Matthew and, and uh, Luke, are more um, uh, information-oriented people, doctor and tax collector. And they share a lot of information, uh, 23%, 24% uh, there. Um, but what's interesting, shared by all three, um, you can kind of see the way it's all divided out. It's kind of interesting. Um, but the, the one that you, you should note here that is kind of cool is the unique only to Luke is 35%. So, so Luke does share with us um, some really good information uh, that's gonna be new that we didn't get in Matthew and Mark so far. Um, and this is the comparison really of the synoptic gospels um, and what's interesting is 20 miracles are recorded, um, six are unique to Luke, um, 23 parables, 18 of them are unique to Luke, which we're gonna get a lot of parables uh, that you haven't heard yet in Matthew or Mark so far. Um, and, the, and also like the road to Emmaus, that whole story. Um, it's only briefly mentioned in Mark, we, we looked at that last week, but the road to Emmaus story, the two guys where Jesus gave the most amazing sermon about himself in the Old Testament, um, that's gonna be detailed in Luke. So um, anyway, I, I hope that's not too much uh, information, but I, I find that stuff interesting. Well, let's get to it. Luke chapter one, verse one. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Uh, can we go back to Mark? <laughs> Boy, right out of the gate, whoo! Uh, verses one through four, good night. What in the world did he just say? Uh, uh, if you contrast with the beginning of the gospel, here's the beginning of the gospel of Mark, verse one. In the, beginning of the, uh, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then he tells the gospel story right there. Luke, what was this? What was verses one through four? Well, um, there's a bunch of things that he's saying here. Um, the first thing, I mean, boy, we could just camp out on this, but um, he, says, uh, he says, you know, that he wants to set forth in order a declaration. Um, uh, and, and this is exactly what Luke's gonna do. He's gonna be more chronological in his breaking out the gospel than the other gospels. You can't always count on chron chronological timeline type stuff, especially with Jews. Jews think very differently than, they, we, they don't like to think linear as much. There's a whole different kind of reasoning. And by the way, that reasoning the Jews employ is actually serving them really well. Um, it has more of a circular reasoning. If you wanna intellectually follow a Jewish discussion, what they tend to do is they start up here and then it seems like they talk through stuff intellectually and it seems to be meandering. Um, and you're like, what in the world are they trying to say? And then when they get to the top, you realize they close the loop and everything they just talked about makes a perfect package deal. And it's not the way we think, it's the way the Jewish mind actually thinks. There's been whole books written about that, which is kind of an interesting thing. But Luke, being a Greek, he, you're, gonna, you're gonna maybe, as an American who also thinks very linear, Luke's gonna bring more of a linear chrono chronology to the whole thing. So when he says to set forth in order uh, a declaration of those things which are so, most surely believed, I'm gonna, Luke's saying, I'm gonna set in order the whole enchilada, the gospel message, so that, you know, because we believe, we believe in Jesus and the story of the gospel, so he's gonna set that forth um, uh, and he's a fellow believer in Christ and he, want, he wants the, what the Christians believe and why. He's gonna tackle that, verse one. Verse two, it says, even as they delivered them unto us, which is from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Um, so they were eyewitnesses. Uh, the stories were passed down by, by the people that were there. Luke got 
his information from the people that saw it with their own eyes. Uh, eyewitness account. And by the way, if you're in a, a, a court of law, there's nothing more powerful than one, well, maybe, you know, maybe a one or two eyewitnesses, but what if you have 500 eyewitnesses? Um, because there were more than 500 people that saw Jesus, according to the book of Acts, after Jesus, pardon me, 1 Corinthians, where Jesus was seen after uh, he rose from the grave. So a lot of eyewitnesses. Um, by the word, I'm probably gonna show you more Greek words uh, in this than maybe normal, if you're okay with that. Because the Greek words are really fascinating, especially with Luke, he uses such cool Greek words. And, um, and also I'll show you more what I mean. Like for example, the word eyewitness is an interesting word. The, the Greek word is autoptes, where we get our word autopsy, autopsy. Uh, which is a medical term, uh, you know, a detailed examination of a, of a dead body, <laughs> uh, which is kind of interesting. But um, the first in this Greek sense, seeing with one's own eye an eyewitness account, that's the term he's using. Uh, but it's a medical term. Luke you know, uh, will scrutinize and closely study and gather all the information and lay it out clearly for us, which you gotta love Luke for that. That's what he's saying here, eyewitness accounts. Um, by the way, you and I are called to do the same thing. The information that we take in, we, we should scrutinize it. I hope you're really good at scrutinizing information, especially today, because there's so much wacko information out there. You, you know, I would just really caution, I know this goes without saying, but I, I, I'm shocked at what I see people forwarding and passing along this so much nonsense and so much bad information. Uh, listening to the news, listening to podcasts and watching social media stuff and be really careful. Don't, like, unless you're absolutely sure, you know, you should be like Luke and scrutinize. You know, Acts 17, 11, you know, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica um, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. It wasn't like they were standoffish, but they were ready to receive the word and they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. That's Acts 17, 11. So Paul, uh, gave us that charge to do the same thing. But Luke is that guy. He's gonna scrutinize and do sort of a detailed examination. Autopsy is kind of the idea of the whole story. Um, and Luke does a really good job compiling all this information for us. Um, not just blindly following things. People are pretty easily duped today. Hope you're not. Um, know the word, know the Bible yourself. Don't just say, well, my pastor Brett said that this, don't say that. Um, do you know how bad that makes you look? And it makes me look like a cult leader. Pastor Brett said this. Who cares what Pastor Brett said? What, what you really wanna do is say the Bible, it is written. That's what y'all wanna say when you're talking to people about the Lord. Uh, that's kind of important. Um, but but um, he's gonna interview the eyewitnesses. Uh, he's gonna compile it all in order. Um, and then in verse three, um, he, he says, it seemed good to me also having perfect understanding of all things. And he knows the story really well. Um, from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know certainly of certainty those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Um, who in the world is Theophilus? Um, well, when he was born, the doctor looked and said, that's the awfulest baby I ever saw. <laughs> No, that's not, I'm just, no, that's, I just made that up. The answer is we don't really know who Theophilus is. Um, is he a man? Or is he a group of people? In fact, there's a whole argument out there. Some people believe he, he's talking about the church of Jesus Christ. How could Theophilus, baby in the whole world, uh, how could that be the church? Well, the word Theophilus means, which, which is kind of interesting, by the way, it means lover of God, theos, phileo. Um, the lover of God, um, which is what the church does, right? We're, we're supposed to be lovers of God. And so there's a whole argument out there that says that he's actually writing this and compiling this so that the church will have the perfect information on the gospel narrative. I don't necessarily believe that one. I believe Theophilus may have been a, a, a actual person of high official rank. Um, the reason we uh, want to kind of deduce that is he calls him the most excellent Theophilus. And Luke uses that a couple other times. He uses that to talk about, to, about Felix and Festus. The guy on Gunsmoke? No, uh, Festus. I got to meet Festus when I was a little kid, by the way, uh, 
in Prescott, Arizona. Festus threw me in jail when I was five years old. He was the grand marshal of the Cowboy Days Parade, but um, that's a whole nother story. This is the Roman leader, Festus uh, and Felix, and, and Luke calls him the most excellent. Every time Luke refers to one of those high government officials, he calls them the most excellent. So it makes you wonder, is he referring to a high governmental status? And by the way, you can jot down Acts 23, 26. Uh, it's one of those places where he uses that word most excellent. 24, Acts 24, 3, and Acts 26, uh, 25. But um, so um, could it be that this is some kind of a high level official that he's addressing? Uh, or some would say that Theophilus was the guy who maybe paid Luke to do the job, to write a report or a uh, you know, um, uh, clarifying work report on Christianity and its validity. Maybe Theophilus uh, himself was a believer because it says here, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So Theophilus has already been instructed in the things of the gospel. So some would say, Theophilus said, hey, I want you to put a written account together, Luke. Um, you're the doctor, you're the smart guy, write it down. Interview the eyewitness accounts and put this together. And some would even say maybe Theophilus was the guy who gave him that charge to do it. Um, so the purpose of the writing of the Gospel of Luke is actually seen uh, in this little four verse uh, uh, quintet, uh, uh, qu quartet, I should say. Uh, eyewitness account, scrutinized and investigated, uh, compiled in chronological order to prove the truth of Jesus Christ himself. That's why the Gospel of Luke exists. And that's what those first uh, four verses tell us. It'll get easier from there, thankfully. Uh, well, verse five. Uh, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Okay, so we looked at this story on Sunday, so I'm not gonna do uh, uh, um, the whole story again, but I did skip over a few details quickly, and I just wanted to make sure we got some kind of important things. Zacharias, his name means God remembers. I think we, I, I mentioned that in some of the services, maybe not all of them. Um, and then Elizabeth, uh, you know, her name means uh, his oath. And um, so scholars kind of get a kick out of this because of the link to the story of Zacharias, Elizabeth, and their, and their, son, uh, their son, John the Baptist. And, um, and when you tie that together, you realize it's God remembers his oath. And you might say, well, what oath? What oath does God remember? Um, um, now, you gotta remember, this is where the Jews haven't heard from God for 400 years. Some scholars say the oath that John the Baptist was gonna come with the spirit of Elijah upon him. Um, and that was a promise, uh, uh, you know, hearing uh, that, that maybe that's the oath. Others say, no, 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 it's the promise of the oath of the coming of the Messiah. Because John the Baptist was the, the kickoff of the whole gospel story. When John the Baptist is born, suddenly now we're, we've got the one preparing the way for the Lamb of God, Jesus, that's John the Baptist's role. So, you know, the, some say the gospel message didn't really kick into gear until J the B was on the story. So, so this uh, God remembers his oath to, to fulfill with the Messiah. I might show you like the, the oath is uh, one of the many places, but I love this one, Psalm 89, uh, verses 34 through 37. The Lord says, my covenant or oath will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed shall endure forever. His throne as the sun before me shall be established forever as the moon, as a faithful witness in heaven, Selah, or stop and think about that. The Lord says, my promise to have the seed of David continued. Jesus would be the seed of David. Uh, the royal line of the throne of David would be Jesus. And so the oath that, that he makes is right, uh, right there. So some scholars say, no, it's an oath of, of the Messiah, uh, messianic prophecy, the seed of, of David. Um, others say, no, 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 it's the oath of um, the promise, um, you know, that uh, Zechariah uh, and, his, and his wife Elizabeth would have a baby. Well, we don't really know that, that there was an oath made there. Um, we do know, however, uh, that um, you know, Zacharias uh, is a high order of the priests of Abiah and also of Aaron through Elizabeth, 
Um, so he's, he's chosen for his priestly duties. And we see that in verse six. It says in verse six, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was, was barren and they both were now well stricken in years. Um, and it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Um, okay, so we, we looked at this on, on Sunday. Zacharias was chosen for priestly duties. Now, um, for you Bible buffs and people that love to study the the Old Testament, um, th we know about what, what this is all about. There's actually 24 courses of priests that would serve. There'd be groups of priests um, and they were drawn up. Those courses were drawn up during the time of David's reign as king of Israel. It's, uh, you can jot this down. First Chronicles 24 verses seven through 18 talks about how they divvied up the groups, the 24 groups of priests. Each division was given duties twice a year um, uh, one week at a time, sort of like the National Guard, two weeks, uh, you know, on and off. Um, well, this was um, during the time of Christ, they write uh, about how many priests there actually were in these courses. There were 8,000 priests during the time of Jesus, which mean each, means each course of priests that would come and do their duty would be about 300 priests. So they would have 300 priests on duty at any given time throughout the year. Um, and uh, it just so happens that Zacharias is on duty right when Elizabeth becomes pregnant with John the Baptist. And we saw the sort of the irony uh, of the story. Here he is lighting the altar of incense. That was his job. And that was a type, a picture of prayer, intercession. And, um, and then his prayer and Elizabeth's prayer was that they would have a son, but she was barren, now they're old. He's lighting the incense and the angel says, you don't believe what I'm telling you? Remember this whole thing, the irony. And uh, was it a coincidence that he was lighting the incense right when uh, his prayer was answered? Um, by the way, coincidence is not a kosher word. Do you know that? Um, I like to call it a godowince. God is in control of everything. Uh, coincidence, I don't believe in, um, especially when it comes to the things of the Lord. Um, but uh, this is what begins the process of the Messiah coming as John the Baptist. The whole multitude is praying. And you gotta understand, the Jews were praying for the Messiah. They still are, by the way, they missed Jesus as the Messiah. But if you go to Jerusalem today, there's still Jews praying heavily, bring us the Messiah, which he's, he's gonna come. And the Jews will see that Jesus is the Messiah, but that's a later date when they're gonna really realize that. Well, we looked at that again on Sunday, verse 11. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Um, the word fear is the Greek word phobos, where we get our word phobia. Um, and uh, you know, it's interesting that he was afraid. And we, we talked about Gabriel and Michael and the angels in the past several weeks and what have you. But um, I, I often think about these scary, Angels, Gabriel's not even the scary one, and he's totally freaked out. Um, do you wonder what these fallen angels might be like? Um, do you think they're scary? Uh, yeah, but good news, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Ephesians six twelve. for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness, against the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Um, we, we, we have a wrestling and a battle that's going on in the spiritual realm but um, the good news is that we have the Lord to, uh, to, to be on our side. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Um, but one thing that we need to remember is, you know, Zacharias is suddenly brought into the spiritual world instantly here, seeing Gabriel. Wouldn't it be something if you and I were more aware of the spiritual realm? When it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, when your boss is giving you a hard time at work and you think, what a jerk. You, you, you're not wrestling against him because he's flesh and blood. Uh, I wonder if there's a spiritual thing going on. Maybe there's demonic entities and angels, fallen angels that are trying to mess you up and derail your faith. Um, you gotta understand where the battle comes from and also where the battle belongs. The battle belongs to the Lord, that's right. Um, 
Now, Luke is gonna talk a lot about angels. I'm just gonna give you a heads up on that. Uh, Luke is gonna mention angel 24 times uh, in the gospel of Luke. So uh, get used to it. Um, verse, verse 13 goes on. But the angel said unto him, fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. What prayer was answered? It's a good question. Uh, were they praying for a son? Probably. But were they also praying for the coming Messiah? Probably. So people debate, what was Zacharias praying for? Your prayer was answered for the Messiah or for a son? Um, the implication is that they prayed for a long, long time and we see him sort of in kind of a state of shock when he hears all this information. Um, and he, he even gets the name. Wouldn't that be great if the Lord just gave you the name you're supposed to name your son? Uh, instead of looking in the name book, Herkimer, Murgerford, Stratifrat, like whatever name you're gonna have for your kids and stuff. Uh, his name shall be um, uh, Ionis. Uh, that's actually the Greek word, um, the, 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 you know, the, the word that means Jehovah is a gracious giver. Uh, and that's the name of John the Baptist. John's some, one of the most common names in our culture, but uh, people don't really uh, know that. Entomology comes from Ionis, um, which is, um, Jehovah is gracious, this is good stuff. Well, verse 14, um, we start with this wonderful list of uh, attributes of John the Baptist. Um, verse 14, and thou shalt have joy and gladness and many shall rejoice at his birth for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, or Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Um, I can't just breeze over this list. There's so many good things. So let's just kind of break it down. I'll try to do this quickly. Um, the the uh, angel Gabriel here uh, gives us the first thing, that just even his um, uh, birth um, is gonna bring joy and gladness. Um, it seems that joy and gladness was part of um, John the Baptist's uh, MO. I mean, we all picture him as a scary dude out in the wilderness with uh, you know, a, a locust leg sort of twitching between his uh, teeth, you know, as he's wearing camel skins and eating uh, honey and locusts for food and stuff, and a little bit of a crazy man. But I, I do believe that uh, John the Baptist was uh, one who would bring joy. Um, just the announcement that he was even here uh, would, would bring him joy. But um, why was, was John the Baptist um, uh, one who would bring joy? I would suggest it's because of his job, his, his job. And, and what was his job? To prepare the way of the Lord, to uh, prepare the way for Jesus. And he was always seen pointing to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And that would bring joy in people's hearts. John the Baptist's message was that of repentance, yes, and turning Israel from their sins, we'll see that. But turning them from their sins to the sin forgiver, the, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins. John the Baptist had a glorious message. Um, do you wanna bring joy to the people that are around you, then point people to Jesus Christ. Um, forget about yourself. You wanna bring misery to your friends and family? Talk about yourself. Just focus on yourself and you'll be miserable and you'll make everybody go, oh, do we have to listen to this anymore? Have you ever noticed there's some people that don't have that self-awareness about talking about themselves? It gets very tiresome. tiresome. Um, are you that person? Are you the person that doesn't know that everybody's tired of hearing of all your stuff? So what? You have the greatest this and that, and you've done this and that. You know, you know these people, it's like, well, I broke my arm when I was little. Oh yeah, I broke my femur when I was in junior high. <laughs> well, congratulations. Does that make you smarter or better somehow? Because, well, it hurts more. You know, it hurt, I broke my femur. Uh, it's not about you. Um, like people, if you're one of those people, man, Listen to those around you if they're saying, man, maybe talk just a little bit about your, a little less about yourself. If somebody's telling you that, you should probably just stop talking about yourself altogether. I'm just giving you a freebie here. You heard it from Pastor Brett. Um, most of you that have that problem are not listening though because you're thinking about yourself right now. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, John the Baptist uh, 
you know, was pointing people to Jesus. If you wanna make people happy and joy, joyful, point them to Jesus Christ. Talk about Jesus Christ. Um, are you a person that when people leave you feel refreshed and encouraged? Or when they leave you, are like, finally. Uh, I can't believe I had to talk to that person for this amount of time. Uh, it's, it's up to you, but John the Baptist brought joy. By the way, in Luke's gospel, he always links joy to salvation. I think that's kind of cool about Luke. And you'll see that as we keep going here. Number two, uh, John the Baptist, great in the sight of the Lord. It says that, uh, which is the only thing that matters. You know, great in the sight of men doesn't matter. But he said, uh, verse 15, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Um, uh, another phrase uh, Luke uses, he uses this 35 times in the sight of, uh, in Luke and also in, the gospel, uh, in, in Luke 2, uh, second Luke, uh, book of Acts. Um, only one time in the other four gospel, other three gospels is the phrase in the sight of the Lord used. Luke will use it 35 times. Um, it's about greatness in the sight of God, not in the sight of man. Um, one of the things the Bible does sort of hint at though, is if you're doing things that are great in the sight of God, God will often give you favor with man at the same time. Daniel's such a guy. In Daniel chapter one, remember he purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat of Babylon. And suddenly um, the, the end of the chapter there says, and Daniel found grace in the sight of the Lord and favor in the sight of men. And I've found that if you uh, are solid with the Lord and, and doing that which is right in the sight of God and pleasing God, then not always, but uh, sometimes the Lord will also give you favor with men. And that's, that's kind of cool. Um, so John the Baptist, Jesus said the greatest man ever born among women will be John the Baptist. And even this angel Gabriel says, he's gonna be great in the sight of the Lord. Um, this is what God says is great. What does the world say is great? Taylor Swift, <laughs> Elon Musk, Vladimir Zelensky. Joseph Biden, Beyonce, Bill Gates. Like, it's funny all the people that we esteem. Like, if you look at, you know, Time Magazine's most great people on the planet, they're not so great. None of them. Um, you know, it's funny. There's, there's a lot of people that I think are truly great people. And it's amazing to me, in God's sight, that's the question. Who is really great in God's sight? I have a hunch they're rarely on the cover of Time Magazine, if ever. The only time I think they put Jesus on the cover once as man of the year, but it wasn't the next year they, who did they put? It was like um, Madonna or something. So it's like, wow, okay, um, got that one wrong. But um, you know, uh, as it turns out, the Lord has a totally different economy of what greatness is. I'm reminded of 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse seven. Uh, but the Lord said to Samuel, when he was looking at the sons of Jesse, who's gonna be the king? Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Um, Jesus talked about this. If you want to be great, um, you must become like a servant. You must become servant of all. The economy is totally tweaked. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Like everything's sort of opposite of what the world says. If you want to actually be great, you got to um, you know, follow the Lord's plan. John was great because he would serve the Lord and he'd do it faithfully. So back to our list, joy and gladness, um, great in the sight of the Lord, um, but also he would not be a partaker of wine. Oh, great, here we go. Pastor Brett, the teetotaler, uh, is gonna make his arguments about not drinking alcohol, the devil's the fire water or whatever. Um, <laughs> Now, it is a funny thing because um, I have noticed uh, in the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years, um, the church has very much opened up and warmed up, not just Athey Creek, but the, the greater church um, to drinking. Um, and, and I understand, you know, um, you know it's, it's interesting because John the Baptist would not be a drinker or partaker of wine. Why is that listed here? Well, it's probably because he took a, um, a Nazarite vow um, now, this would be a partial Nazarite vow. There's different kinds of Nazarite vows. Can anybody name a, a lifelong Nazarite? Samson. He, was, he took the, the, the full meal deal of the Nazarite vow from the time he was born 
technically until he was supposed to die, uh, but you know how that story went. But he was a Nazarite from birth. John the Baptist was a little different, uh, partial for a season, he would be a Nazarite. Um, and, um, but he would not drink any wine. Um, what was the reason for that? Uh, why did the Nazarites do that? Well, they wouldn't touch any dead thing to defile themselves. They wouldn't drink wine or even be around a vineyard for that matter. Um, and then they would let their hair grow long. And uh, that's why all the pictures of John the Baptist with the crazy hair or drawings, you know, or whatever. But, um, but here's the thing, I, I do need to add this. Um, you know, alcohol has become such a huge problem in our country um, and alcoholism. And, and you know, uh, well, I'm just being like Jesus, Pastor Brett. Um, I'm drinking just like Jesus drank. Uh, well, I've got an answer for that too. Here's a couple things. Because of the nature of alcohol and what's happened to so many people, um, there's a lot of evil that often, whether you wanna admit it or not, is associated with drinking too much. And a lot of people struggle with drinking too much. So um, if you wanna have a little wine with your dinner or you know, beer if you're drinking uh, beer while you're watching football, God bless you, that's, that's fine. I'm not gonna be legalistic about that, um, even though I'm tempted to be. <laughs> Brett, you're just a religious prude, probably. Um, but I, I do see all the horrible things. Like that, as a, from a pastoral point of view, I have just not seen a lot of good. Well, Brett, you haven't had a beer during a football game. That's true, I haven't. But I've done the funeral for a guy who had too many beers for, during a football game. Um, in fact, I did a funeral for a friend of mine who was such an raging alcoholic. We tried, we got him in rehab. We tried to get him to do this and that and the other thing. But one, guy, one of my friends took a gun and sh stuck it in his mouth and blew his brains out. Um, all because of alcohol. Um, so I've, I've got some real world experience as a pastor and wrecked lives. I have friends who've been killed by drunk drivers. I mean, like I just don't see a lot of great stuff coming from alcohol. And, and you know what? Here's, a, here's the truth. Local churches here got really into the alcohol thing. There's pastors that were starting to talk about their favorite mixed, drink, mixed drinks from the pulpit, you know, and serving coors at their home groups and stuff. And they were so proud about that. Those churches are not doing, in fact, they've all fallen apart. Why? Because that's kind of what happens with alcohol. I'm just telling you the truth. Um, so what, what do we do with that? You know, um, my, my rule of thumb is not, thou shalt not drink alcohol. Uh, my rule of thumb is 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. And, um, you know, as, as I have uh, become abstinent when it comes to alcohol, I've never had alcohol in my life, um, except for rubbing alcohol, you know, once in a while. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've chosen to say, I'm just gonna abstain from even the appearance of evil. Because you know what? I don't wanna stumble my brothers and sisters who are struggling with alcohol. As a pastor, I feel that. And, and by the way, our staff and our pastoral team and our elders and deacons, they've all just said, you know what? We know that we can all, it's, it's okay if we wanted to drink, but if we're gonna be on the team at Athe, we're not gonna drink. And, and we chose to do that, not out of law or legalism. Well, Brett, what about 1 Timothy 3? You know, you're supposed to not be given to much wine. Yeah, but even that, our argument is not much wine. Um, but it says to the elder not to be given to wine. It says the exact same thing in the Greek text, the deacon and the elder not to be given to much wine. So all in, you know, like the pastors will say, see, we, we can drink alcohol. I'll give them that. But I don't abstain out of law. I abstain out of love. That's the difference. It's a get to, not a got to. And that's the, the choice that our staff and leadership makes. Uh, if a person wants to be on staff or in the leadership team here at AFI, um, they're saying, we're gonna just not drink alcohol. That's gonna be part of our deal. Um, now, for some of you, that would be the reason why you wouldn't work at Athey Creek. And that's okay. Uh, that's all right. Um, but if you did work here, that's what we would ask of you. And uh, if you were a part of our, our team, it's not out of legalism, it's out of love. Um, now, um, you know, uh, John the Baptist, I wonder if he wanted to also be very clear headed. He had one of the most amazing announcements in the world to give, that of Jesus Christ. Um, and I wonder if, you know, the Jews who knew the Old Testament, Proverbs 31, Solomon, who knew something about alcohol and strong drink, he said, his, uh, his mother wrote, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of the afflicted. Give strong drink to the, him that is ready to perish and wine to those that be heavy with, uh, of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Um, interesting words from the Proverbs. Um, you know, uh, did Jesus just drink Welch's? That's a question. 
um, Welch's grape juice. No. Uh, remember, he drank uh, wine, and when he turned water into wine, remember what the governor of the feast said? Wow, you brought the good stuff out. Jesus made good stuff. And I don't think you call good stuff Welch's if you're at a wedding uh, and you're drinking the wine and, you know, all that. But, um, but uh, while some people like to make that argument, Jesus turned water into wine, um, he didn't turn it into vodka or Jack Daniels, though. I'm just saying. It wasn't, you know, 80 proof or whatever. Uh, just, I'm just telling you that. Um, um, they only had a couple of choices in Bible times. You could have water or you could have wine. Uh, if you're really uh, wanting to do something crazy, you could have some warm goat's milk. But other than that, that's your options uh, in Bible times. Um, so we, uh, can we say having a beer with, your wine, uh, with dinner or a wine with your dinner is wrong? Uh, no, uh, you know, remember what Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Um, and so we have to ask what's gonna edify and build up and make us better. Um, and if it's, uh, if it, that's something to ask yourself. And again, if, if uh, you know, if old Pastor Brett showed up at your house and had dinner and you drank a little wine with your dinner, I wouldn't go, ha, ah, get thee behind me, Satan. I wouldn't do that. Um, um, having a drink is not a sin. Getting drunk is a sin. Getting a little tipsy is a sin. The Bible tells us that very, very importantly. Um, now, back to the person that piously says, I'm just being like Jesus, uh, you know, because he drank wine, so I'm drinking wine. No, if you wanna be like Jesus, I'll quote scripture, uh, Luke 22, 18. Jesus said, for I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. So you're gonna be teetotaling until the millennial kingdom uh, if you're following Jesus's example. I'm sort of joking, but kind of not. Anyway, uh, I know I'm off the rails, but, but uh, just something for you to think about. Um, I... I have to say, um, I feel so free not having to decide if I'm gonna drink alcohol. Um, it's it, like that decision was taken away from me when I was a kid. I saw my buddies drinking and it, it never brought good stuff. In fact, one of my, um, I sh I'm way off course. I don't know why I keep talking about this, but um, <laughs> I remember one of my best friends in high school, we were supposed to go on our senior trip uh, after we graduated, we, we uh, did a big bus trip to uh, Disneyland and it was gonna be really fun and everything. But a bunch of my senior friends, they all had a big kegger the night before. Um, and uh, I was supposed to go and give a couple of them a ride to where we were going in my Volkswagen uh, to, uh, that next morning. Well, nobody was where they were gonna, supposed to be. And I'd heard that there was this party at this house the night before. So I drove over there and me and my buddy, uh, we walked in and the place smelled horrifying. And everybody was passed out on the floor some people sort of half dressed and it was like a real crazy party. But the one girl that I was supposed to pick up and bring to the senior trip, um, she was passed out on the couch in this house where this big kegger had happened. And, um, and I just thought, oh man. And so we, we were really bummed because we really wanted her to go with us. She's one of our friends. And so we, well, we tried to wake her up and, and, um, and she, she kind of halfway woke up and she sat up and what had happened came very apparent. She had barfed in the couch and then she fell down and passed out in her barf on the couch. But over the longevity of the evening, the barf had sort of uh, hardened, if you know what I mean? And, it, and it, it, sort of, it sort of stuck in her hair, the same shape as the couch. So when she got up, it was like this, her hair was like this and the chunks kind of dropping. And I'm telling you, I've never been tempted to drink. Uh, <laughs> Not one time uh, after that. I was like, yeah. Another thing is my dad would kill me if I drank alcohol um, you know, when I was a kid. But I've never regretted not, not drinking. Just something for you all to think about. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's a problem. It's a huge, huge problem. And if you're denying that, then you are in denial. And we're not talking about a river in Egypt. Well, Back to our John the Baptist list, sorry. Man, we're not gonna get through this chapter tonight. <laughs> um, notice number four, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, it says there. We talked about that on Sunday. Uh, here's God filling uh, you know, John the Baptist before he's even born with the, uh, the Spirit of God. And um, this is like the empowering. Remember the with, in, and upon experience of the Spirit? This is that third experience before John the Baptist is even born. He's got the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, number five, uh, he'll bring the people of Israel back to God. They'd lived in rebellion in much of the Old Testament, but John the Baptist would actually uh, bring people back to the Lord. In fact, Mark chapter one, if you remember verses four and five, said John baptized in the wilderness, preaching the baptism of repentance. And, um, and um, pe people were there confessing their sins and getting baptized. That's what John the Baptist did. I love the repentance part of John the Baptist's uh, ministry. Number six, um, he would have the spirit of Elijah. Now, um, really quick, I wanna remind you, remember this, this weird discussion about John the Baptist and Elijah? If you were with us in Matthew or Mark, we've covered this in detail, so I'm not gonna do this, but I'm gonna do this really fast. Uh, you guys ready? Because we're running out of time. So here's a few things to remember. Um, in Matthew 11:14, 14, Jesus said about John the Baptist said, and if you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. When he was talking about John the Baptist. So question, was Elijah John the Baptist? So you, some of you remember, it's like, this is a trick question, isn't it, Pastor Brett? Sure is. Um, in fact, John, uh, John 1, 19, um, this is the record of John when he, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then art thou? Um, Elias or Elijah? And he said, I am not. Um, art thou that prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to, him, uh, to them that sent us, what sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, um, as said the prophet Isaiah. Um, so Jesus said, if you can understand this, this is Elijah. John the Baptist said, no, I'm not Elijah. And then you go to Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13. This is where you put the pieces together. His disciples asked him saying, why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? Um, and Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already. And they knew him not, but have uh, done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the son of man suffer them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Um, will Elijah return? Yes. And um, Jesus said, if you can handle this, which you probably can't, implication, uh, John the Baptist, uh, you know, Elijah's already come in John the Baptist. Well, I thought he wasn't. John the Baptist said he wasn't. Which one is it, Brett? Um, well, the prophecy of the scribes that they taught was from Malachi. This is the one 400 years earlier. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This is the prophecy of the Old Testament about the, the coming of Elijah. Jesus mysteriously kept saying, if you can handle this, Elijah's coming already in John the Baptist. Implication, but he's still gonna come um, during the day of the Lord. Um, so you Bible folks know, um, John the Baptist, you might put it this way, the spirit of Elijah was sort of upon John the Baptist. That's kind of the way most scholars land on this. He had the same spirit. Um, remember how the spirit was transferred from Elijah to Elisha? Some would say it was transferred from Elisha, the same spirit was upon J the B. But guess what? I believe Elijah is still yet to come in the fullest extent known. And anybody remember where that's gonna be? When's he gonna come? The tribulation period when the two witnesses, the two prophets, uh, one of those is probably gonna be Elijah. Um, that's what's being referred to here. Number seven, um, uh, ready the people for the Messiah. This was what he was to do. To turn the hearts, uh, verse 17 says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Um, the greatest man born among women, seven things there um, that are listed, um, which are really important. Now, quickly, uh, just a couple more verses. Uh, verses 18 through 20, Zechariah said to the angel, whereby shall I know this? For I am old man and my uh, wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. I am sent to speak unto thee and show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled um, in their season. Why couldn't Zacharias speak? Because of his unbelief. Old J. Vernon McGee said, I agree with Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who said the one without faith should be silent. 
There are many babblers around who everlastingly spout off about their unbelief. If they haven't anything to say, they should keep quiet. Let the man speak who believes in God and has something to say. <laughs> That's pretty harsh, but uh, I, I have to agree with that. Um, verse 21, and the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he had beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months saying, thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked upon me to take away my reproach among um, men. What was her reproach? Barrenness. In other words, this, this sort of tells us this was, this was a real bummer for her, obviously, to not be able to have uh, a child and she was barren. Um, by the way, barrenness and sorrow and sadness, the Lord doesn't tell us we're protected from that. I hope you understand that. In fact, the Bible tells us sort of the opposite. If, you, if you're living godly, um, 2 Timothy 3, 12, yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Well, then why should I be a Christian if I'm only gonna be a Christian and things are gonna get worse? Uh, the answer, eternal life. Don't forget this. Sometimes we forget it. Christianity um, is not our hope in this life. Christianity is the hope in, in the life hereafter that's eternal. This is just boot camp. Um, that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians you know, 4, he said, for our light afflictions, but for a moment, it works a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, stuff here and now, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary or temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Even though Zacharias was full of unbelief, God would still accomplish great things through him and Elizabeth, even in their unbelief. Um, and that will be true for you as well. So, so don't be weary in well-doing like Galatians 6, 9. In due season, you'll reap a harvest if you faint not. And, um, and there it is. Uh, we will pick it up in verse 26, Lord willing, next week. There we go. Lord, we're so thankful. Uh, just these reminders of your word. And as we uh, kind of do an introduction to the gospel of Luke, just prepare our hearts, Lord, to receive this gospel and just to uh, be shaped and transformed as we read the story of the good news. Um, bless these, your people, who've taken the time this evening to carve out either here or watching online. Lord, just thank you for all the folks that are joining us May, uh, may good fruit come from this time, we pray. So bless this crew as we go home tonight. Now in Jesus' name, amen.